True crime is so popular because people like to realize the worst that can happen because it helps like with anxiety and that sort of thing because if you know the worst that can happen you don't really have much to fear. People go, well I'd never commit murder but I think everyone has a breaking point and that's what I love is finding those little niches in people's life where they where they an ordinary person good decent just breaks. I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's a mecca for true crime superfans where detectives, lawyers and even podcasters become celebrities for a weekend and where the public mix and mingle with faces and voices they know so well. Created in America, where the true crime genre has become a major multi-million dollar industry. CrimeCon is relatively new to this side of the Atlantic, but it's already built up a cult following. This week, we attended the show to talk to those showcased in a growing media arena where murder meets entertainment. We talk to the podcasters, the genealogists, the detectives and the true crime enthusiasts who say that victims remain centre stage throughout the event, which focuses on catching killers and untangling mysteries. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Hi, I'm Rachel from the DNA Day Project. My name's Matt, I'm from the DNA Doe Project. I'm Megan Pasika, I'm from the DNA Doe Project as well. Tell me a little bit about what a, a Jane and John Doe case is and, and what is the DNA Doe Project doing? John and Jane Doe's are people who are unidentified human remains. So police find a, a body or a skeleton or a bone and they do not have the means to identify who that person was in life. Um, they could be someone who was deceased for minutes um, and they just don't have identification on them. It could be a single bone that washes up on a shore somewhere. Uh, what DNA Doe Project does is we use investigative genetic genealogy or forensic genealogy. We extract a DNA profile from a physical sample of the doe and we upload that to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA, which are both databases that we can use uh, to work on these cases. And that is the same technology that was used to solve the Golden State Killer case in California. Uh, But we don't work suspect cases, we only work the Doe cases, uh, trying to identify the victims. And what we do is once we have that profile, we look at the matches of people who have also uploaded to those databases, and we start to build out those people's family trees. And then we find areas where those family trees converge on one another, we find common ancestors, and we can start to piece together the common ancestors that these people share with our Doe's, and then we can kind of build out and down from there and try to find people who may match the doe um, in particular you know their age where they were found and where they may have lived um, and certain physical characteristics and things like that so can you guys tell me a little bit about what you're doing here today and why you're at CrimeCon so the main reason we come to CrimeCon is to raise awareness of what we're doing for American and Canadian John and Jane Doe cases. Uh, we have many cases, we've sold around 80 cases now I believe, um, and today we've come with 12 cases that we're featuring, some of which have British heritage, others have links to, uh, to Britain, you know, they have strong matches in Britain. Um, so we're trying to raise awareness of these cases, encourage people to upload to GEDmatch because that will help us to solve these cases, um, as well as there's kind of a concerted push 
much amongst us, I think it's fair to say, to encourage the usage of IgG, investigative genetic genealogy, uh, in the UK, seeing as it's something that hasn't yet been used in the UK before. And so I, as an Irish person, I want to help out maybe with Jane and John Doe cases and want to maybe donate my DNA to see what uh, what I can do. Um, what, what would I need to do or how would I go about that? You would need to have taken a direct-to-consumer DNA test, which is any Ancestry, 23andMe, MyHeritage, Family Tree DNA, any of those uh, would work. Um, and any of those websites will let you export and um, have for yourself your own raw DNA data. And once you have that, you can upload it to GEDmatch um, or Family Tree DNA. And so... When I kind of came over to talk to you guys, I was very interested to see you were here. You guys did mention to me that there was potentially an Irish unidentified person. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So there's a case that unfortunately has the moniker Betty the Bag Lady. I can only assume that it was the detective choosing a uh, more unique name in in order to uh, make the case stand out a little bit more. But she was an elderly woman found in Michigan in 1992. Her remains appear to have been dumped on the side of the road it's believed that she could have been from a care facility in Indiana or Illinois and that possibly following her death, her remains were left there uh, for some unknown reason. Or perhaps she was a victim of homicide. We're still unsure about the details, although we're hoping that if we are able to identify her, that will lead us to clues about how she ended up there um, and why nobody has come forward so far to uh, identify her as a, as a relative. When we uploaded her DNA to GEDmatch, we found that she had British heritage and Italian heritage, but predominantly Irish heritage. And we believe that one of her parents may well have been an Irish immigrant to the United States. Um, She has matches, uh, a number of matches with recent Irish heritage, but unfortunately these matches are too low for us to successfully work because the common ancestors with the Jane Doe were probably uh, in the early 1800s before the Irish civil records um, came into play. Uh, So if we had closer matches from Ireland, we would have been able to identify her a long time ago. Uh, But unfortunately, due to this dearth of matches, we've so far been unable to. As a result, we're hoping that more people of Irish descent, whether or not they live in Ireland, will be able to upload to GEDmatch and help us identify her, as has been the case with previous cases such as the Trinity Bellwoods Jane Doe case that I worked on last December, where the Doe had Irish heritage and we were able to identify them successfully. My name is Eric Carter Lundin, and my podcast is called True Consequences. It's all about true crime in New Mexico. So tell us, why did you start your podcast? Yeah, so 35 years ago, my baby brother was murdered. Uh, His killer was never brought to justice, so I created the show to advocate for his case, but also to advocate for others in my community who are fighting for justice. You're wearing a t-shirt for um, the True Consequences podcast, and it says humanized true crime. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm also advocating for changing the tone and uh, the approach of true crime because sometimes it can be quite exploitive. Sometimes it can be very traumatizing for family members. Um, people want to get the great, the, the next scoop on it. And so I'm trying to advocate for making true crime focus on the victims, making true crime ethical, um, focusing on facts, not speculating. Um, I don't believe in victim blaming. And so I've created merch to kind of reinforce that message that I've been blasting on Twitter. Absolutely, and I can't help but notice as well your your symbol for the podcast, which is a circle with four lines, and I also think I've seen it tattooed on your wrist. What does that mean? So that is the state symbol of New Mexico, 
Um, it is a tribal symbol. We have 23 tribes in our state. This is from the Zia Pueblo, and the symbol is called a Zia. And it represents, obviously, the sun, right? Uh, but there's four quadrants, is what I would say, with four lines. And it, we're talking about the four stages of life, the four seasons, the four times of day, and... Oh, no. I'm going to forget the last one. I always do this. I don't remember what the last one is, but look it up. It's called the Zia symbol. <laughs> Your podcast, Murder Mile, is uh, has been represented here at CrimeCon before, yeah. and will be again. Um, tell me about it and what you do. Um, my initial idea was how many murders are on one street. I started with Soho only because I worked there years ago, and I thought to myself, how many murders are on this street? Probably none. But now I'm finding not only murders next door to each other but in the same building different people the same people coming back and I've I think I've barely scratched the surface so on Murder Mile even though I cover the West End mostly I cover a small nucleus of about a quarter of a mile which is the West End of Soho around Old Compton Street and it's murder everywhere and how do you find your stories like are you you know are you going back through the archives of old newspapers and we're near Fleet Street here of course so yeah um, this was the home of all those stories at one point. Um, like, do people ring you up? Do people tip you off to some other... Are you a historian, really? Sometimes. I, I spent years as a researcher for BBC and ITV, so, um, and I love stories. But I, I go through the National Archives. Um, they have a real wealth of kind of murder case files, court records, police files. Um, and what I love doing is grabbing a file, knowing nothing about it except date and place and murder, obviously. Um, and I just open the file and I just start reading. It's, it's, it's like someone has given you a novel and they've dropped it on the floor and the pages aren't numbered and then you re-piece it together and on page one you go, right, Susan was in a pub on Tuesday and they found a red handbag and you go, okay, who is Susan? What's the pub? Why is it significant? And then you start exploring and you find all these details of people in their lives and what they're about and that takes so murder isn't my entry point it's about who are these people what are they about i love it oh, it's definitely about storytelling isn't mm. it and, yeah you know as we're here in london discovering people love stories about murder i think people quite often uh, find murder fascinating because it seems to be an us and them kind of idea that well this wouldn't happen to me because i'm sensible and i'm good but what i love to focus on is not big crimes i focus on the little crimes so um the one i've just done um uh, a, a gentleman who committed a, a murder over five pounds and you just think five pounds it's like if if someone had stolen five pounds off me, I would let them go. But they were kind of so upset about it. It was in their blood. They couldn't let it go. So planned this murder? No, no, it was, it was kind of a, a crime of passion. Okay. But that's what I love is, is that people go, well, I'd never commit murder. But I think everyone has a breaking point. And that's what I love is finding those little niches in people's life where, they, where they, an ordinary person, good, decent, just breaks. <laughs> Uh, Adam Lloyd, UK True Crime Podcast. 
So tell us a little bit about your podcast and why you started it. So I started my podcast in November 2016. I used to work for a big pharmaceutical company and they sent me on planes all the time for the weeks. And often on a Friday, Thursday, I had enough. I couldn't be bothered to read, couldn't be bothered to work. And a colleague of mine used to listen to podcasts. So I started to look for crime podcasts because that interested me. But I couldn't really find any, especially UK crime. There was lots of US stuff, but nothing UK. So I thought, okay, if there's not one out there, why don't I go and do one myself? And what year was that? That's November 2016. Wow, okay. Oh my God, why is this me? Um, so tell us then, um, what kind of cases you cover? Are you weekly? Yeah, so I do a case every Tuesday. It's usually about, up to about 30 minutes, short cases. I don't do the big cases. They don't really interest me. So my interest in true crime came about because a friend of mine at university, he was um, in Brazil uh, traveling. And one evening they'd been out for dinner at the hotel, three of them, and crossed the road, and he got caught in a shootout between armed robbers and security guards. And a bullet ricocheted off a tree, hit him in the back of his head and killed him, killed Nick. And that's what inspired my interest in true crime. It's that that moment that can happen to any of us when something completely random happens um, and it costs you your life and that's the sort of case I tend to focus on so maybe people might have been in a pub and walked out at just the wrong time and they walked into some incident and so they're the sort of cases I try and cover rather than the big cases as you know they're covered in lots of detail and lots of other podcasts there's something for everyone isn't it My name's Eileen McFarlane, I'm the host of Crime Lapse and I'm the co-host of The Shattered Window. Tell me about The Shattered Window first of all because I'm looking at, I'm standing here with you at your stall at CrimeCon and I'm looking at some really nice posters um, saying The Shattered Window, some things can never be repaired. What's the story about or what's the podcast about? So The Shattered Window is about Jacqueline de Wallaby, who was snatched from her bedroom in 1988 in um, Illinois. Uh, so Midlothian, Illinois, she was um, just a kid. It's kind of similar to the John Benet Ramsey story, except that Jacqueline's parents were working class and instead of you know getting lots of media coverage, they got railroaded by the police. And uh, so it's about an unsolved case, a wrongful conviction... And, and how did you find that case or, you know, find your interest in it? Well, it started because Emily, my co-host Emily G. Thompson, she has a book called uh, Unsolved Child Murders and Jacqueline's case was one of them that she did and she just wanted to look a bit deeper into it. So we ended up doing investigative research on it. So we contacted the first respondent detectives on it, on the case. We spoke with the lawyers. Uh, we spoke with family members uh, we got the trial transcripts and stuff like that so we just pieced it all together it's 10 episodes in total but it's everything that you could possibly know about yeah tell me a little bit about the story without ruining it for anyone who wants to listen to it what happened so if you think of you know everyone thinks that it's impossible that John Bonet Ramsey was snatched from her house while other people were sleeping but like the Jacqueline Wallaby case proves that it is possible for a stranger to break into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night without waking anyone up and take a child and kill them. So like, it's, it's basically a, a worst nightmare. Yeah. So 
basically it's just a story of how the police can get it wrong, what happens when an investigation is not done properly, when you know they don't follow proper police protocol, when there's prosecution, prosecutorial misconduct. Basically, at every place where it could have went wrong, it did go wrong for the Diwallabies. And even now, you know, they, they've changed their names and they've moved, but they couldn't shake, like, what happened to them, even by the media. And it just shows the power of the media, how it can flip a case from one side to the other because the police were feeding information to the media the whole time. So what they were reporting was from a biased source in the first place, a source that immediately thought it was the parents. But then, by the end, the media can also be the heroes because they realised that they were wrong. And, you know, it just kind of shows how important it is to have ethics in, in this business. So, yeah. So it's basically what you're doing is storytelling. Certainly it's a story that has all the elements that would keep a reader hooked but what you're doing is you're telling the story on audio into people's ears while they're walking while they're cycling whatever they're doing you know why do you think people love that audio thing and podcasting and I mean you're looking around here today and it's just mega isn't it I think that podcasting is such a massive thing because you don't have to sit down to watch it you know you can still go about your business while listening it's like having someone reading a book into your ears depending on the type of podcast that you listen to ours is strictly narration so there's you know banter no chattiness it's just storytelling but like people like that kind of thing it it feels less lonely sometimes and I think true crime is so popular because people like to realise the worst that can happen because it helps like with anxiety and that sort of thing because if you know the worst that can happen you don't really have much to fear My name is Oshin and my podcast is called The Troubles Podcast. I was listening to podcasts for like 10 years and I always said to myself I'd love to do one. Um, but I never really, I was determined to do one. I wanted to have a good idea. So then I learned about the IRA blowing up uh, Lord Mountbatten, this big elaborate operation that they did. And I was like, this is fascinating. Um, so I started looking around for podcasts around The Troubles. There's nothing on it. Um, so I guess I found a niche and I wanted to do like true crime so yeah, I started the podcast. It's kind of more of a history podcast, but it is. It, I think it skirts between true crime and history. What I found when I tried to look up stuff about the Troubles is that it's a very, very dense, complicated period. And most people don't have a clue where to start. So as an Irish person, if I found it so hard to comprehend, I could only think that American people, English people, people around the world wouldn't have a clue where to start. So this was my attempt to make this the starting point. This is like, if I could recommend, you know, there's. this is where you should be able to understand this without getting dense, uh, oversaturated, biased. I wanted to get rid of all that and just make it as simple as possible. My name's Dr. Shaham Das. I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist. So I assess and rehabilitate mentally disordered offenders. I think there's, there's two parts to my job. There's actually assessing them for their court cases. So that's deciding if they're criminally culpable, whether they need hospital or prison. And then the second part is the small minority that get through that part who need rehabilitation, who need hospitalisation, I look after them in locked secure units, usually medium secure units. So okay, that's basically so what I do. You've worked in Broadmoor. I have, yeah, yeah. Uh, people love asking me about Broadmoor. Sure uh, and uh, I have worked there, but it was a long time ago. I was a junior psychiatrist, it was about seven or eight years ago. Um, but yeah, I used to work there for 
for a few months. And you talk about that a lot in your new book, In Two Minds. Um, what What is that book about? What drove you to kind of get your story down on paper? Yeah. So I've always been aware that there's a general fascination with what I do. So people, when they find out what I do for a living, have so many questions, like who's the craziest person you've ever assessed? What do you think of X and X serial killer or this new story? So I've always known there's an interest, but I've never really had the time or the inclination to do anything about it. And then lockdown happened and I had a lot more free time in my hands and I just kind of thought both my book and my YouTube channel, if I don't do something about it now, then I probably never will. So I just kind of put my head down, uh, wrote the book, got, got an agent. Uh, went through several cycles of changing it and getting it edited till I thought it was ready and then released it, yeah. So it is basically like professional memoirs, but highlighted with my most interesting or extreme kind of cases and how they affected me and how I dealt with them. And in your book as well, you, you're not just the serious doctor who works in these, you know, very high security hospitals. You also tried your hand at comedy. I did, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I tried and failed to be a stand-up comic. Um, so was, I've actually tried it twice in my life. So I tried it once really? in my mid-20s. Okay. I did about 40 gigs back then. I was really disorganised at the time. I actually moved countries within that period of time from England to Australia, then uh, back to Scotland. So my attempts at comedy were really disjointed. And then I literally forgot about it for about 10 years. And then suddenly I was literally driving home from work one day and I just suddenly thought I really want to try this again because I don't know if there's any good or not because I never took it seriously the first time around. So this was probably about three years ago now. Uh, so I re-entered the world of comedy on the open mic scene in London, which is really difficult because it's so competitive. There's like literally hundreds of wannabe stand-up comics uh, and very few spots. So, yeah. Uh, but what you talk about is, uh, we were at your talk yesterday on Broadmoor, naturally, and, you know, it is quite a serious topic that, that you are. Do you find, like, the comic relief helps? Uh, it helps me. <laughs> I think that, I think most people appreciate it. Definitely through my YouTube channel, I have uh, quite a lot of uh, trolls and hateful comments, and a lot of them are about me making jokes about the topics. But I think that I'm very careful about the, about the target of all my jokes. So I never, ever make a joke about a victim. It's always about either myself or the situation or something in society that's funny. So I think humor always can work with any topic but you just have to be very careful about who the target is and what your tone is as well. And on that, obviously, you know, being a mental health professional and the true crime industry is going through this kind of moment of ethics are very in the forefront and everything like that. And I'm just wondering, do you think that in any way, the way that mental health is portrayed in these true crime stories, do you think it stigmatizes it even more? Um, yes, yeah, I think it does. So two things spring to mind. First of all, the mental health professionals that are portrayed in not all dramas, but a lot of dramas, whether it's, uh, whether it's documentaries or more often fiction, they tend to be really old and stuffy and very serious. And some of them tend to be like quite cruel. Like I'm thinking of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There always seems to be some staff members that have it in for the patients. I've, I've very rarely seen some sort of psychiatric setup or a hospital setup that's fiction that doesn't have at least one of those characters, which is just not true. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's very, very rare. So that's one thing. And the other thing I think is that the depiction of the patients always seems to be people who are like dribbling wrecks who are completely over-medicated, who can barely string a sentence together. Having worked in lots of secure units and having worked in Broadmoor, there are definitely some patients like that, but they're a very small minority. I'd say like maybe less than 10% of patients are like that. Most of them are at varying, like they're still unwell and they still have symptoms, but they're in varying stages of recovery. And that is not shown, I don't think, in most TV series. I'm Justin. I'm Aaron. And we're the Generation Y podcast. It's this little podcast that's been around for 10 years. 
10 years. Yeah. Tell us how you got started. Uh, I was on a jury for a first degree murder trial and jury selection was on a Monday and I put a man for to you know put away a man for life on a Thursday. So, Can you tell us what the case was? Uh, it was uh, uh, a drug deal kind of gone wrong. And uh, I felt like most of the world doesn't understand how the court systems work, especially in America. So I wanted to tell the world about that. And Aaron had just watched a cool documentary called The Staircase. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2012, we decided that it would be a cool thing to start a podcast and... Uh, talk about these things. So tell us a little bit about then what you've been doing with your podcastings and what sort of stuff you cover. Oh, we cover, you know, unsolved crimes. We cover missing persons. We cover the, if done it, like, was someone murdered or did they take their own life? Was it an accident? You know, we cover cases like that because we do want to know. So we're always questioning why the system worked the way it did or why they, you know, ended up at the theory they did, you know, law enforcement, because that really comes down to, are we passing this along to a DA? Will there be justice or is there not justice to be gotten in the case? So a lot to talk about there. What was the case that got you into true crime? It wasn't the, ju uh, the jury duty. It was actually, uh, when I was a wee little lad, I uh, was living in Southern California and I saw Richard Ramirez's face on the television because they had just caught him. And I didn't know what had happened, and I had to ask my mom, what's that? Oh, wow. Yeah, for me, I guess um, it was either Jack the Ripper case or it was the Zodiac. One of those cases, probably both of them around the same time. when an alarm goes off in the middle of a crime conference, you do wonder, well, if you're like me, you wonder what the hell is going on? Everyone's spilling out of the hotel, but of course we had, you know, a fire. And uh, it added to the drama in one way, but in another way, it happened at a good time because it was just as the conference was coming to the end of the first day. So that's where we're at. So we're all a bit rattled, but here we are. So tell me what CrimeCon is. Hot at the moment. Extremely. Because we've <laughs> no air con. We're all a bit disgusting, aren't we? Yes, no no air conditioning and no hot water. Yeah. So yeah. Feels yeah. a little bit like a festival we've at the moment. Of, we've had a few glasses of wine though, so that helps. It's an American thing, is it? Is that where it started? Yeah, it did. So it started in 2017 in Indianapolis. Right. It's run and operated by a company called Red Seat Ventures mm. by a guy called Kevin Balf. Um so the principles of it are exactly the same in the sense that it offers a full programme of true crime. Um, we still bring over American acts. Yeah, like with Paul Holes here, who's like the celebrity. He's like the rock star, isn't he? he He's is. walking around the hotel. He's been accosted by women. And yeah. Colin Sutton as well, Colin who Sutton. is so funny. Yeah. It's brilliant. He absolutely. I mean, he's our, he's our hero here, Colin. He was here with us last year. Did you worry that a UK stroke Irish audience weren't ready for this sort of commercialization of crime because there is a way of handling it that that, that you know um I'm sure you have to be very careful who you let come and what stalls there are etc yeah absolutely so we're very particular about not sensationalizing true crime um this is very victims focus they'll do a lot of work with the families and I don't think people would choose to come to CrimeCon if people 
weren't respectful of that. Mm. You know, you're not. It's not Comic Con. You're not going to find I love Ted Bundy T-shirts out there. So we just don't accept that. Sixty-eight percent of our audience are females buying a single solo ticket. Often, people interested in true crime. I know I'm one of these people in my circle of girlfriends. I'm very, very interested in true crime, and I would buy a ticket to come to this show. My girls would probably not spend mm. the money to come. You know, mm. they, they, they might tag along uh, because they're not as passionate about it as me. We've seen a few husbands get dragged along or a few partners get dragged along. Yeah, well, mm. I've seen a few of them as well. God love them. They, they're like as if they're sitting in a, sh- a clothing shop, you know, in the corner, <laughs> yeah, exactly looking like miserable. Looking at, looking at her yeah. tights or makeup, like my husband does. He would never come tights or makeup shopping with me. That's exactly what it's like. That's what it's like. But they do get into it. Now, finally... Um, you're going to Glasgow next, but is Ireland anywhere on the agenda? Oh, is I Dublin? Knew you could ask that. It will be our destination after. Mm. Uh, Michael Dynan definitely wants to go to Ireland for personal reasons, don't you? So um, we'll, um, yeah, we're looking at Ireland. Yes, so we've got Scotland on the 10th of September. We're definitely doing London next year. We will definitely do CrimeCon again next year, the same weekend next year. But I don't want to grow it too fast. I want it to still have this sort of family, community vibe. I love the fact that you see Christopher Berry D walking around the aisles. I love the fact that you're bumping into Colin Sutton in the lift. I love the fact that everyone's just hanging out. There's no hierarchy. There's no exclusivity. It's just... It's, I, I, it's exactly what we set out to do when we launched this event here. With all of the events we run, it's always community first. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.